Hello, I'm Justin Smith, and you're listening to What is AI? Today, we're going to have a conversation with Camille Alban. She's an intellectual property attorney who's going to provide perspective on the current state of artificial intelligence. She provides examples of what is and isn't defendable from intellectual property produced by AI perspective. And also, she shares her thoughts on the future impacts and benefits of AI, specifically who stands to benefit and which populations may be the most at risk. Welcome to What is AI? Today on the program, we've got Camille Aubin, and uh, we're going to talk about sort of the legal aspects of artificial intelligence and also sort of her perspectives on where the field is currently. Uh, Did I say your last name right, Camille? Is that correct? Uh, Obey. Well, it's Uh, not really an international name, so I I won't blame it on you. Okay. (laughs) Uh, It's fine. Uh, Yeah, well, so I'm a... IP lawyer practicing in Canada. Uh, my focus is in uh, intellectual property, so patents, trademarks, copyright, industrial designs. And we have a lot of work involving IT in, uh, in various forms, especially in the, in the last few years. It's, it's a practice that has been growing more and more, um, I mean, with the, the, the IT field. And um, so, being in, in IP is a, is a bit of a, a special place in, in law. Uh, in my perspective, we're really, really lucky in IP because we have kind of the best way to to practice as a lawyer, while being um, at the forefront of technological changes. I mean, you you have uh, clients, uh, scientists, uh, uh, searchers who are coming with new inventions or new projects every week, and you get to see those developments in, in very various fields. So yeah, that's uh, that, that's where I come from. Yeah, that's fascinating. So how did you get into intellectual property law? It was uh, <laughs> uh, it, it was unexpected a bit. I already always had a, a great interest in both science and um, and arts, and IP is is uh, a good way of merging both with law. Um, to be honest, I I've said that often to 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 different friends and, and various people. If if I wasn't practicing in IP, I probably wouldn't be practicing as a lawyer. Okay. Um, the, the 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 best side of practicing in IP is that you really have a chance to to learn uh, technology or projects from various fields that you've never heard about before. Um, you're practicing law, but in, in each and every file, you, you learn about a new technology, uh, for example, uh, be it in uh, the railway industry, in the uh, software or hotel industry, and stuff like that. So in, in each field, you really start to learn um, a new project, a new technology from A to Z, and you become an expert for a few years in that specific technology, and then you move to another field. And so it, it gets you... Uh, learning all the time about your your clients' projects and your clients' uh, inventions, and that's how it it's it's far from from being always the same thing that you're working on and doing the same thing. And I think that's the thing that brought me to IP is really the fact that you get to learn a whole different set of skills and knowledge and in, uh, in each and every file. Wow, that's sounds amazing. I think that sounds super exciting for people that are interested in being kind of lifelong learners and having it being a career where there is, there is new things happening and being developed all the time. 
Yes, exactly. And I, you know, I get that from a, um, a teacher I, I had who was an art history teacher and she had her, her own gallery. And she said she was uh, working mainly in uh, contemporary art, mod- modern art. And she said, well, what's good with my job is that I never stop learning, uh, since it's, it's all modern and contemporary. We have new, um, new ways of dealing with the art, with art that's coming at every year and every, every, uh, or every decade or something like that. And it, 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 it makes me feel young all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I kept that in my mind, uh, when I started, um, when I went to university and I started practicing, it's always something I remembered and, and it became kind of a goal for me to, to have that in what I'm doing. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, I, I sounds like my dream job. <laughs> I'd say I have my dream job now, but I, the, the idea of being able to be a lifelong learner and kind of have that didacticness to change expertises would be very, very interesting. Also very challenging, yeah. I'm sure too, where you sort of settle in and you realize, oh, I don't know that much about railways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to be a, a fast learner. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. That's amazing. So help us understand from a legal perspective is there, I, I, maybe, maybe I just don't know, is there a legal definition of artificial intelligence? I know there, there is none yet. And there's a, you know, in general in AI, we we're really at a point where we're defining a lot of, of things, a lot of uh, terms that we're going to use, that we're, kind of, we're trying to have uh, common general terms that people will use in various fields in the same way so that people speak the same language. And usually uh, in the legal field, we're really not at the forefront of this. We're, we're, uh, we react more than we act. Um, and, and that's, that's true for most technologies and that's true for, for, uh, for AI also. Um, usually how it works is that when you have new developments in law, it's mostly because Either it came before a court and the court was stuck in a situation that was very new and, um, it did know how, it did not know how to deal with that situation. Or, uh, you have a change in, uh, in the legislation. So laws or, or, or different regulations are put forward to address a specific issue. But when it's addressed, usually it's because, it's because it already became an issue. So to answer your question shortly, no, we don't have one. And to and to add on it, it's, it's probably going to be a few years before we do. Got it, got it. So when an invention comes in, say, to your office, and mm-hmm. I'm just trying to think kind of through the framework. So an invention comes into your office and, they, and you know, it gets evaluated. At what point do you say, oh, yep, this is definitely machine learning. This is artificial intelligence. Is there a kind of a set of uh, indicators or... Um, I guess, pathways that you you use from the intellectual property side to say this falls into this bucket of artificial intelligence? Well, usually when we get to the point where we intervene, it has been already defined by uh, by the inventor. So, for uh, okay. example, what, you, what you're describing here would be a situation where you have an inventor coming in um, saying, well, I want to uh, file a patent on what, what I invented. And um, how it works is that you'll have first the inventor on one, one side who's usually very specialized in what he's do- he or she's doing. Yeah. And on the other side, you'll have a patent agent um, 
usually patent agents are working, have a, a, a double background. So one background in science and one background in law. Some only have the background in science and learned law through their, their job as patent agents. But, um, the patent agents that you will have assigned to files where you have AI, no matter what's the, um, what's the type of AI or of a uh, computational technique will be someone who's uh, either a software engineer or an electrical engineer who has been working with, um, soft software inventions in general a lot. And so when that person meets the inventor, then they, they will define what's in the patent. But when you work with, uh, that a patent prosecution and patent drafting, you're really in, in working in the details. So you don't necessarily need to define it, um, uh, as broadly as is it AI or not. It's really a more, more precise than that because usually patents are really on more, more specific aspects. Got it. That makes sense. I think that that helps. The, the kind of the idea that the inventor gets to help define it before it gets to the process where you guys get involved. Yeah, and it's really a teamwork. Yeah. Uh, when you when you get to file a patent, you work a lot with the, with the inventor or or the company that owns the the IEP to to try to to define the scope of the patent to make sure that you have the. Um, you have a protection that is really adequate for what you want to do with it. Yeah. That must, uh, I'm just kind of thinking now that it must be a little bit tough as we're still defining the field where, you know, this is why you guys are so busy, right? Is putting protection around things that we don't know where it's going yet. I mean, that's, yeah. Yeah. Well, there are different ways of addressing because it's true that we, Especially in law, there are a lot of uncertainties, uncertainties regarding AI and how it will be treated in, in IP. Um, there are, and as a pr- practitioner, you're, you're a bit, um, you're in a situation where you don't necessarily know how the courts will side on this issue. You don't know if the, the, the government is going to rule on it and try to have legislation passed so that they, they really have a clear framework for IP lawyers to work with. So there are different ways that you can address these issues and these uh, uncertainties uh, with the clients. And usually it, it goes through having a various, um, uh, uh, a varied IP strategy. So you want to, you don't want to just use one single form of protection uh, uh. because if that form of protections uh, of the of protection ends up being changed by the court or by the law, then you might have a problem in the future for for that invention and its protection. So you try to have different forms of protection for a same type of of uh, technology, and you also try to have as much uh, contractual protections as you can. Got it. Got it. Oh, that's that's really interesting. I I, I think from the kind of more the practitioner side or the 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 side of trying to come up with the new technology, the new cool stuff, you know, we don't get training at all in thinking about how do you protect this for the future. And so this is a, a really powerful framework, I think, to put around it where think about it from different perspectives for the future, which mm-hmm. sounds... I don't know. It sounds easier to do, I think, than it is. <laughs> which is <laughs> what, what makes it so hard, probably. 
Well, by uh, by what you're saying that the the usually people who are working in the field don't have the training necessary to to uh, foresee all of those different IP strategies. Yeah. And by people in the field, I mean people who are really like uh, in the pit doing like working on on uh, various research or new inventions and stuff like that. Um, it makes me think that about something that I've realized over the years, and is and it's that. There is a, a big gap between the practitioners in IP and the people who are doing research and who are uh, developing new inventions and stuff like that. And it's mostly uh, an educational gap. Yeah. Um, there, there is, I think, a, a problem in the, uh, especially when it comes to research done in, in universities and stuff like that. Uh, there should be, I think, more awareness and and um, and training on IP for people who are doing research, just so, so that they they know what ahead of time what can become important and what they have to look out for while they they are developing their technology. Yeah, for sure. Sort of that looking down the road, even if you're the one doing the actual work, to say, oh, I need to make sure I document this here in this way, or you know, start a, start a certain process to go along the you know provisional patent filing or something like that is that sort of what yeah. you're talking about yeah yes exactly so one good example is um, we we often have people from uh, from either undergraduate or graduate studies coming to file a patent on something they've been working on for several weeks uh, years and um, often they had a a context in which at a university they had to do a presentation or a, a, a pitch to third parties, so to people from the industry to show their technology and stuff like that. But they have never been aware that that could have an impact on their ability to file a patent afterwards. Uh. Because you, there's a, a rule that's applicable in in, uh, in the several countries. So in Canada and in the U.S., if you disclose your invention, then you have one year from that disclosure to file your patent. And in some countries, as soon as it's disclosed, you can't file it. And um, that's something we see very often in the uh, in the universities and. Um, uh, the research field, people disclosing their invention without knowing that it will have an impact on, on their ability to file a patent afterwards. Yeah, for sure. So you carry a backpack with non-disclosure agreements just to hand out to people. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Always have one in your wallet. <laughs> exactly. I'd like to have a conversation with you, but please sign this NDA before we go down. You're like, I just want to buy a bus pass. What's the... <laughs> That's fun. So I think part of part of kind of from the conversations that I've been having, part of what you know kind of comes up often is the idea of ethics, and you know I put the ethics slash law right, mm-hmm. and I think one of the big fears with artificial intelligence is that ethics aren't being uh, infused in the most utmost manner up front. Meaning uh, a lot of what AI and machine learning is really good at is advertising or you know group. Uh, selection, defining certain groups of individuals or behaviors, and then, you know, marketing to them. And so I guess from your perspective, how do you see uh, maybe, you know, ethics, if you'd like to go there, please feel free, Um, but more kind of from the legal framework of how do you see law helping to shape AI, you know, today, and then kind of down the road as it comes through as there are more, you know, litigations associated with algorithms that did or did not perform 
uh, as they should have. Mm. Well, it, that's. Um, I think that's part of the bigger challenge that we have in law with AI. Uh, it's, there are two things. The one is uh, something we discussed a bit before is the fact that law often reacts rather than act on, on some issues. So um, when you get a legal, a clear legal framework, it's often because there has already been problems. Um, so I'm not sure, to be honest, and from what I've seen in the field is that I'm not sure that the, the law is really a solution on the ethical problems mm-hmm. um, and the ethical issues. The, the places where I've seen that the ethical issues were the best addressed uh, are where um, it, it was really the scientists or the uh, da- data scientists or programmers and stuff like that that were um, taking the ball on it and on ethics and trying to infuse it in the way that they work and that they develop the, the software because um, that's really the best way of having it, uh, having this issue uh, addressed at the beginning of the work rather than after there's uh, a problem has uh, has become um, um, uncontrollable or has resulted in uh, in the end of the um, of the, the the law or the lawyers and stuff like that. Yeah, for so sure. that's that's really on the ethics side, and that's unfortunate. I mean, it, it shouldn't be that way, but that I think that's one of the disadvantages of how this legal system works. Um, and another problem that we have that is more related to the law is that law always regulated actions of humans and interactions between them before. So basic legal principles that support either the common law system, like we have in part of Canada and the U.S. and all commonwealth uh, countries, or the civil law that we have here in Quebec or there is in France and some U- European countries, um, the basic legal principles in, in those legal systems are usually evolving around the notion of the, the inv- individual. So, for example, and by individual, I mean really a human being. So, for example, you have several legal tests to determine if a person's actions are accept- acceptable in law um, that evolve around the notion of a reasonable person. So we want to know what a reasonable person would have done in the same circumstances. And that is how we determine if a person's actions are acceptable or not. And, and this is, uh, this practice of having legal tests surrounding the human being is, is not only applicable to, to torts or, uh, or contracts. Over the years, it's, it's spread pretty much in, in, uh, in every, fields of the law and and that includes ip and the problem with that is that we have uh really a a a legal framework that's based on the human being human nature the reasonable person and you're trying to um to apply it to something that is not necessarily human based and that's the biggest challenge with uh, AI and and law, the common goal of AI techniques is is to perform tasks that were traditionally within the grasp of humans only, and you want to recreate that way of thinking of solving problems. And in several cases, it leads to decision making and actions. 
uh, be it self-driving cars or software generating new inventions or uh, new co- uh, new works or stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. So the so the result the result is that we have a legal framework that is not really adapted to AI. And uh, it, it was framed from A to Z with humans' actions and interactions in mind. And it's hard to try to see how working with that can help you address potential issues with AI since it's not really adapted. And, well, if you want to, I, I can give you a few examples. Yeah, that We sure. have, for example, an IP that becomes, a, a, that becomes now a struggle with AI. So... There's one, uh, there are two that comes to my mind. The first is for, with copyright and the second is in, is with, uh, patents. So th- we, we've seen in the last few years a lot of examples of software that will develop artworks that would be normally copyrightable. So that would be, um, for example, a, a software, uh, making a, a new song, uh, or, uh, de- um, creating a new artwork, for example, a painting or a drawing or something like that. There have been, for example, uh, albums um, that have been made available in the last year that were on which I think all of the music was uh, made by AI and uh, the only human addition was um, the, the singer and that's it. Oh, interesting. So there are several examples of, of works that would be protected by copyright if they had been made by a human. But in those cases, there have been made by, generated by, by AI. And in, in Canada, um, and I think you have the same uh, principles in the U.S., or it's very similar, but maybe some with some minimal distinctions on, on the words used and terms used. But the, the Supreme Court uh, in Canada established several years ago that copyright protection can only be granted where you have... Um, exercise of skill and judgment. And the Supreme Court also gave a definition for skill and judgment. And this definition is, is clearly adapted to human skill and judgment. And obviously at the time, well, the, the court was did not have in mind that at one point we might have AI-generated works. So yeah. when you read, for example, the definition of, of judgment in, in uh, skill and judgment, it relates to uh, the capacity for discernment, uh, ability to form an opinion, evaluation by comparing different possible option and producing the work that will be protected by copyright. And another thing that the Supreme Court also said is that it, the, the, the exercise of skill and judgment must not be so trivial that it could be characterized as purely mechani- uh, a purely mechanical exercise. So by hearing that test, you can't, you can't see easily how it can be hard to find the exercise of skill and judgment when it, when there is little to no human input in something that was really AI generated. So that's, that's one of the two examples of where what we have as legal framework is really difficult to, to apply to what you'll be creating with, with AI or yeah. that AI will be creating. So um, can I, can I ask a question? Sorry. I, so that, that prompted the question in my mind, is there mm-hmm. a threshold for human involvement that would then meet that definition? So it could be protected. Say, say if you had a program that's generating all of your melodies and then you had a human that kind of curated that, you know, curated some of the melodies or changed them slightly 
to then say, no, this is the machine did the base work. And then I, I, I made it better as a human. Would that be, would that fall under protection or not? Well, that could be something that you would argue to, to show that there was a human who exercised skill and judgment and that led him to have the authorship of the, the final work. Got it. Got it. I, cause so, I, yeah. Yeah. At that, at that, at this point in time, most of the things that we have seen were, uh, had a human input at one point. Okay. And, um, the analysis at this point in time would be more related to the, is, is the input of that human being sufficient to grant him the status of an author? Ah, sufficient input from the human being. So is there a legal threshold for that or? Not quite yet. Not quite yet. Okay. And um, there are other issues also that, that are related to that. So if you have part of the work that is ger- uh, generated by AI and part of the work that is, uh, is generated by a human, you still need to address whether that person will have uh, sole authorship or if that, it, the, the work will be considered at, as a work of joint or authorship. And if it's uh, joint authorship, then you have a whole other legal framework, framework that comes into play. Got it. And joint authorship, you mean between the human and the AI? Yes, exactly. Uh, interesting. So those are questions are not addressed yet. And it, it shows how the legal framework is not really adapted to the kind of situations we will and have with AI for in some instances and that we already have with AI in other instances. It's fascinating. And the, the other example that I yeah, yeah. had was um, uh, for patents. So the problem is a bit similar in the sense that, again, it's really related that it, it's really a test related to human being. So, um, and the test I'm thinking about is the same in the, in the US. So usually a court will consider when you have, for example, a patent infringement case or something like that, the court will look at the patent and um, we'll determine with experts uh, who is the person of skill in the art. So that's that's one notion you need to determine, who is the person of skill in the art. So basically what you do is that you read the patent and you try to determine who is it addressed to. So for example, is it a basic mechanical patent in the railway industry? And if so, in that case, you might determine that the person of skill in the arts is a mechanical engineer with two years of practice in the industry. So once you have determined who's the person skill in the art, then everything in the patent, the terms, uh, the, 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 um, the references and stuff like that will all be read from the perspective of that person. Ah, uh, interesting. Okay. So, and you will consider the body of knowledge of that person, uh, uh, his or her understanding of different terms in the patent and st- stuff like that. So here again, you really have a test that is difficult to adapt to inventions that are gera- generated by AI because it is intrinsically human-centered. So that's that's pretty much the, the two that's two examples that we have in IP, but there are a lot of different examples that you would have in other fields of the law that shows how for now we're not really adapted for situations uh, that might come up with AI. Yeah. So we still have to hash that out. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
you know, if you're building a house, right, you have to meet yeah. certain building code guidelines and it mm -hmm. has to be safe. It has to be effective. It has to be able to stand, you know, a certain amount of wind and earthquakes, wherever it is that you're building. And I, I don't know of, or I haven't searched enough to find, and there's no body that's regulating it to say, look, if you're building an AI, you have to be able to check these boxes to say, yes, we considered, you know, it's not a bias algorithm. Yes, we're not doing this to harm human beings intentionally. Yes, we're not doing this, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah. But that's something where I think it'll be really interesting to see kind of what happens, you know, as more and more of these AI systems start to go into production and kind of go into operations, as we talk about sometimes, the idea of, you know, using it in the real world so that it's functionally live and, mm -hmm. and working and how that'll affect the kind of the, the public or sort of, you know, everybody's everybody's demand for, well, did this meet the minimum viability of ethical consideration? Um, yeah. yeah. And that would be a good way for, for law to stop being a reactionary and, and to, to, to really be... Um, considered at the beginning of the, the, the work and development of AI rather than being something that can just react to if, whether there are problems with AI and stuff like that. So those guidelines and standard would be a good way. And what you're saying makes me think of um, some of the things we heard about uh, with uh, liability and, uh, and use of AI in the last few years in the law. Um, you know there are there are some um, some industries in which you you have a no fault regime. So, for example, here in Quebec, what we have is a no fault regime for ev all accidents that would be that would be on the road. So, oh. if you hit someone with your car and um, there's an accident, anything, it's a no fault regime. Your your um, your insurances will, will pay, and and you there's no possibility for for the victim to sue the driver, for example. And um, there have been some discussions to do the same thing with AI, and the reason is that there is. Um, the reason is basically basically the the black box effect of AI. So if you have, for example, a situation, I'm going to use the, the, the self-driven car because it's yeah. it's the e easiest example. But to be honest, it's maybe not the best because there are a lot of regulations in the the automotive uh, automobile industry and uh, and everything. But yeah. for example, if you have a, a self-driving car and there's an accident. And um, the person who wants to, to uh, who's uh, involved in the accident because of the self-driving car wants to sue uh, the person who manufactured the car or the software that is used in the car. Because, and by suing the the um, the person who manufactured the car would would have to show if there was a mistake made, for example, in the and uh, preparing the so and and um, programming the software. If it was a mistake that is due to something that is not related to software, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah. because of the black the black box effect of of AI, it might not even be possible for the uh, the car company to understand what was the the mistake and how the accident happened. 
So there's not always the possibility of knowing exactly what's, what was the, um, the path for decision making for the AI system. And in those cases, it would be extremely hard for a company to build, uh, to constitute a, a defense in a, a, a trial when you don't know exactly what happened with the software because of that black box effect. Yeah, interesting. So there have been some talks about um, the possibility of a no fault regime re- regime in in AI because uh, because of of that black box problem because if you're not able to explain what is what happened and to build a defense uh, because of that black box effect, then you will almost automatically automatically be responsible in all cases because you're not able to build your defense. And so it it creates a, um, a disbalance between the parties when you get to, to to trial or in a in a in a legal battle for responsibility. Yeah, or I could see it being used to where everybody says, "Well, we're not going to develop anything AI because we're completely at risk for all of it." Exactly. So, and that's one thing. What you're saying there is is one thing that we've heard for a lot of legal problems related to AI. Um, when you're you talk about uh, uh, tort and legal liability, or you talk about the possibility of having IP protected and to monetize it and stuff like that. If, if the legal framework gives you, uh, a huge dis- disadvantage in using AI, then there's a problem in terms of incentives for, for, uh, technological research and developments. Yeah. I, I could just see it being very detrimental. <laughs> exactly. Which would be which would be really tough. So uh, kind of from from your perspective, what are some of the things that have you the most kind of maybe scared too strong of a word from a legal perspective, but just are, are have you has you the most worried with artificial intelligence? Um the thing that worries me the most is probably something you've heard in other um, other interviews you've done before, but it's the educational gap. Um, there is a growing concern that uh, the impact of AI on the population uh, might be extremely important, especially when it comes to the increased impact of um uh, well, th- that the impact will vary a lot depending on the educational level of people. Um, and that's compi- combined with the pace at which technology evolves. It's, it's hard for, for people to keep track uh, of, of the developments, especially for a layperson. And that c- combined with um, a lower educational level may lead to... Um, to great difficulties from some part of for some part of the population. So, and I'll, I'll give you an example that is a bit broader yeah. with uh, the, dif- the difference between different generations, and then I can give you an example with the courts. Um, we also already see, for example, that, that the younger generation has access or a better knowledge of, of technology. So there are several schools that integrated coding techniques um, in their courses. So children will start learning to code when they are in school. And that will probably help them understand better uh, the technology they're working with, including AI. Uh, however, when you consider an older generation that did not have access to that kind of education and that already 
have a struggle to work with new technologies on the day-to-day basis, the gap between those two generations can be extremely uh, large and big. So I think one of the things that scares me is, is that gap and the impact that it can have on the ability of different generations to understand each other and um and also do the um the fact that older generations would be more reluctant to adapt to adopt these kind of technologies mm. because usually people fear what they don't understand yeah <laughs> yeah and that's where i think education plays a large role and I, you know the if I take it one step further, you know, from the education gap, which then leads to an income gap, right? And the income gap exactly. will be completely exacerbated by individuals that have the opportunity to learn the skills to then leverage the new tools and techniques um, or even to develop them versus, you know, if, if you don't have the education or the availability for education, um, it, it becomes very detrimental to society at large, unfortunately. Yeah. And it, there would be also an issue of, of uh, well, one, an issue of inequalities. Uh, um, I think that's what it, it, com- it comes down to. Yeah. Uh, but also a, an issue of trust, uh, an issue of trust in the technology and ha- how it can be, bring positive change. Um, one of the examples that we've all seen, for example, people in our at work uh, that struggled for with a new software um, that comes in and that become that have kind of a distrust with for the system and that want to just go back to using paper. Yes. <laughs> and um, and that's one thing that could happen increasingly with with AI. Um, and and that kind of uh, mistrust is seen also uh, in court. Um, so we we've talked about how that educational education gap can be a problem and also how it can be very different from one generation to the other. Mm-hmm. And obviously people who are sitting on the bench are not really people who just got out of school and learned how to code. <laughs> ah, so that'll have downstream effects on how it's being perceived by those doing the judgment. Exactly. Uh-huh. So it, we see how some judges might have difficulties in, dra- in grasping technological notions, and that often leads to suspicion uh, on their part. Yeah. Um, for example, I had, a, and, and the examples that I will give you are not even related to AI. It was way simpler technology, so I can't imagine how how bigger of a problem it will become with AI. But at one point, I remember a colleague of mine had a judge terrified by showing him something, uh, how something worked by doing a demo on his iPhone. Um, and uh, it's, wow. it's, uh, it's not in... Um, that there are, that's one thing, but then there's also when you get to... Uh, there's also a problem when you get to uh, a case that is really related to technology in complex technology that might uh, involve aspects that might involve aspects that a judge has never heard has never heard about um and get that can be uh, really te- technologically advanced uh 
And it's not in every context that a judge can be helped by an expert who explains the technology for several hours. Uh, when you get to trial, that's the case, but a lot of the time in court is spent on, on motions where experts are very rarely involved. And so the, the, the judge might have, uh, uh, might be struggling a bit more with the technology and does not necessarily have the help, the help that he, he or she would need to to fully understand the case. Yeah, well, I, I think an important point from my perspective here is uh, the reasonable, you know, laws based on a reasonable person's actions, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and now we're asking for a reasonable per, reasonable person to understand the technology when, in fact, unfortunately, the technology has leapfrogged past, you know, due to educational gaps where a reasonable person should understand what's going on. Uh, exactly. That's where, uh, you know, I, I, as you talk about the educational gap, I, I think that's a very, very uh, acute point, mostly because that's going to be a huge issue where you're trying to describe something, somebody that takes, you know, five or 10 years of understanding to be able to, to build it or to do it. And you have three hours to try and bring somebody up to speed. That's nearly impossible. Mm-hmm. And that's that's part of our job as uh, as lawyers uh, in litigation to to explain that to the judge. But um, it can be in, increasingly difficult when yeah. you get to technologies that are very complex. And, and that has an impact not just on the specific case, but also on um, the trust that people have in the system. So if, if you have several cases where you end up having uh, a judge misunderstanding some of the, the technological aspects, it can uh, lead to people in some certain industries uh, to feel like courts cannot be of help in those situations because there is this uh, misunderstanding of the technology. So Very interesting. So that... That gets me back to what we discussed before is that, uh, education for all generations about, um, the new technologies that will become part of daily life will be extremely important. Yeah. Yeah. At least so they get that, that kind of, we all have a foundational working knowledge of what's, what's going on with these systems in the background. Yeah, exactly. Uh, That's really important. So what, so spinning from spinning, pivoting from fears, right? Say we all have the fantastic education and we all understand kind of where this is going in the best case scenario, right? What what gets you excited about AI? Um, well, from, from a legal perspective, what really gets me excited is to see how it will be addressed because we, we, we've talked about a lot. Uh, we, we talked a lot about how, what are the different issues that we have in the legal, legal system. For example, the fact that it's really centered on the human being and stuff like that. Yeah. But, um, I, I'm really eager to see how th- these issues will, will be resolved. So there are different way of, uh, resolving it. It's, it can be either because you have a, I, I don't know, a groundbreaking case uh, um, uh, that is put before the court and that probably goes uh, up on appeal a lot because we're in uh, really uh, uncharted territory. Um, and then the court will rule, rule on one side or the other and then people will have a better understanding and better idea of how this is- these issues will be treated in law. Or you might have governments that really decide to take um, uh, to take action and to um, 
have incorporated a new body of legislation that would address uh, AI and uh, the new advances in, in technology and stuff like that. So I, I'm I'm really looking forward to how it will rule out in the legal field, um, especially since when it's taken uh, in charge by, by government and legislation, uh, there are usually a lot of consultation done beforehand to see exactly with, ex- with experts what are the, pro- the f- different problems that we have and what we need to address. Um, and that will be very interesting. It u- usually leads to very interesting discussions. We have some actually that are ongoing in Canada here. Um, in Canada, they have to do uh, uh, reform of the copyright law every five years. Oh. And they're doing one now when uh, AI has been addressed, I know, recently. I, I haven't seen the uh, the exchanges uh, yet, but um, I, I, I'm looking forward to see how, how far they will go in, in trying to address the problems or just to see, wait and see how the court will address it. Yeah, I I, th- I think kind of how I how I synthesize what you're what you're explaining is the idea of it becoming more formalized, kind of the framework around it, and that we'll have those mm-hmm. kind of you know curbs and gutters legally to understand uh, in a m- much more formalized way. Whereas right now, uh, I describe it to people as we're kind of in the wild west, unfortunately, and yeah. <laughs> I I make sure I'm doing things and we're doing things that are you know what I see is beneficial, uh, but at the same time nobody knows, and so. It'll be very, it'll be very nice, I think, to have that idea of, oh, hey, no, we can't do that. We know that that <laughs> we can't ask that question that way because you know it's unethical or again now in the future state illegal, uh, which mm-hmm. we we don't have yet. Oh, it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. How can we learn more about your work? Uh, well, there. Are, well, do you mean my personal work yeah. or just IP yeah, and, and AI in general? Both. Let's say both. <laughs> well, in general, there are a lot of um, of presentations and uh, articles that are written, uh, given or written, uh, pretty much everywhere around the world uh, in, in uh, on uh, AI and IP. Um, so, generally, by uh, th- there are a lot of, of uh, conferences on the uh, the implications of of uh, AI and its impact on IP um, that are given pretty much a, um, everywhere. A lot of give are uh, based on work with uh, universities. So if you if someone if you know universities are very involved in the field, usually it will be a good a good door uh, to enter that field and see what can be interesting events and stuff like that. Um, and uh, on the personal side, that's pretty much the same thing. I've been working in the last uh, two or three years with a few colleagues of mine on giving presentations at, at conferences and, um, and writing articles on the, the um, on IP and AI. So we usually try to share them as much as we can on uh, social media or on the website from our firm, so robic.ca. Got it. Awesome. Wow. Camille, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a fascinating conversation from my perspective, and I I know our listeners are going to greatly enjoy it. So I just want to say thank you very much. Well, thanks to you too. I think it's a really great initiative that you have there, and uh, it's uh, it, I have no doubt it will lead to very interesting discussions. I really enjoyed my conversation with Camille. One of the things that will keep me thinking about this for a long time 
is the idea that there's no legal precedent currently set or legal frameworks that have been formalized for the idea of intellectual property surrounding artificial intelligence. And we kind of explored the idea of the standardized ethical code of conduct for IAI programmers and designers to follow, but it hasn't come to fruition yet. And so I think that'll be something to kind of keep our eye on as a community moving forward. Also, Camille's point of education will be one of the major drivers of the wealth gap in the future. Uh, I think that also pushes us toward the idea of it's our responsibility to be good stewards of this technology and make sure it's being developed to benefit humanity and not hold up to increase the wealth gap. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to continue this conversation, you can connect with me at justinsmithphd.com.